What I've learned is, is you like to mention be area agnostic is one of your commandments and that I love that. I like to look at this as also be, when it comes to real estate investing, be age agnostic. Who cares what age you are? You can start doing this at 19, like you did. You could start doing this in your 20s. You can start doing it in your 50s. I started in my 50s. Welcome to the Creating Wealth Show with Jason Hartman. You're about to learn a new slant on investing, some exciting techniques, and fresh new approaches to the world's most historically proven asset class that will enable you to create more wealth and freedom than you ever thought possible. Jason is a genuine, self-made multimillionaire who's actually been there and done it. He's a successful investor, lender, developer, and entrepreneur who's owned properties in 11 states, had hundreds of tenants and been involved in thousands of real estate transactions. This program will help you follow in Jason's footsteps on the road to your financial independence day. You really can do it. And now, here's your host, Jason Hartman, with the complete solution for real estate investors. Welcome to episode 1154-1154. This is your host, Jason Hartman, and today we've got a great guest. We've got the former chief economist at the International Monetary Fund, otherwise known as the IMF. He was former governor of the Reserve Bank of India. He was prominently featured in the Oscar-winning documentary Inside Job. You probably all saw that, and named by Time Magazine as one of the 100 most influential people in the world. So we'll get to that interview in a moment, but first, I've got our in-house economist, Thomas, here. He is working on a survey that I think all of you will be very interested in, which is sort of a scorecard of linear, cyclical, and hybrid markets. And hopefully we will make this a standard and do it every year, where we just kind of keep score as to how each of these three categories of markets are doing. That will help guide us in where we should be investing in income properties. Thomas, welcome back. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? Good, good. I'm looking forward to seeing you at Meet the Masters of Income Property this weekend, talking about a lot of good stuff there. And I'm also looking forward to your report that I just mentioned on the three basic types of real estate markets. But today, before we get to our guest, let's just talk a little bit about mortgage payments and what really affects mortgage payments. You know, of course, we talk a lot about inflation-induced debt destruction and how that impacts your mortgage over time and what a beautiful thing that is. Basically, inflation pays off your mortgage for you. But what affects the payment that you get when you get the loan, right? Things like credit score, et cetera. Yeah, lots of things affect the mortgage payment. Inflation, in that it affects the 30-year mortgage rate, the credit score, the loan amount, the loan term, the down payment, whether you do a fixed or adjustable rate mortgage. What type of loan? Can the bank resell the loan? Uh, the location, the Federal Reserve's money supply decisions can affect the mortgage payment, uh, competition in the market for supplying mortgages. You know, sometimes even the weather can affect the mortgage rate. Talk to us about the weather for a moment. Curious about that one. Oh, yeah. So it goes along with when there are dark, gloomy days over the city of New York. Research showed that the stock market generally performs poorly. It's not by a large amount. The yeah. statistical difference isn't large, but it's, but it's a, there. It's a small thing. It's a, it, you know, that's really interesting because you're right, of course. I mean, this impacts people. I mean, I totally noticed this 
When I moved to Arizona in 2011, I left the Socialist Republic of California to move to Arizona, cut my tax rate, state tax by 69% by crossing the border into Arizona. You know, I couldn't believe, Thomas, how happy and cheerful the attitude was in Arizona. Not to say that it's terrible in California. It's not. People are fairly cheerful. But you go to more northern climates where it is gloomy and, you know, you look at suicide rates, you look at, I'd say, overall optimism toward life, whether people are kind of closed up or, or open, how much clothing people wear on their bodies influences their mood. This is real, isn't it? Yeah, we live in a human world. Yeah. And it's not just driven by numbers. Right. Absolutely. And for you, an economist saying that is pretty impressive. <laughs> Definitely. The credit score, the credit history of the borrower certainly affects the interest rate they get on a loan. This is kind of obvious. But what may not be obvious is there are a lot of new credit scoring models that are starting to really become popular. The old standard, the FICO score, is um, uh, possibly waning, I think. And I think that is a good thing. You know, the world of big data really keeps about, you know, I've heard about a thousand data points on any one person. And there are lots of little things, and I've talked about this before, that influence the repayment uh, and the performance of loans. For example, let me give you a really weird one. They have noticed uh, over big statistical samples that people that fill out loan applications for whatever type of loan by hand People who write in all capital letters have a higher default rate than people that write in upper and lowercase letters. Isn't that interesting? Oh, when I heard that, that made me think, oh, I better start writing sentence case. I, I'm the type of person that writes all uppercase. Oh my gosh. So you look, <laughs> you're the type of person where now you don't send me emails like that where you're, it looks like you're yelling at me. <laughs> <laughs> so thankfully you, you do use the shift key on your computer, right? <laughs> but when yeah, you're writing just, by you hand. Know. Yeah. Just when I'm writing by hand, I use uppercase and yeah. that would be bad for me. It's really interesting. You know, I'll tell you, I did a strategic defaults during the last Great Recession. And I talked about that extensively on the show and at my live events and so forth and interviewed many guests who talked about that. And it's something I would have never considered doing before the last Great Recession. But I, I kind of thought, look, you know, the banking system has screwed over the American public. About 12 million people, give or take, did some form of strategic default. Uh, and they did it because the banks told us to do it to get a loan modification, right? And so my always very high for all my life credit score took a little bit of a hit. And what was interesting about that is I didn't really apply for any financing for a while. But if I did, they don't know that I've got a couple million bucks in the bank. They don't know that I've got a ton of equity in real estate. They don't know that I've got a bunch of businesses. They just know my FICO score. Like, how would that be a very accurate way to decide the risk of a borrower? It's just an incomplete assessment of a borrower. A FICO score is just not enough, is it? Oh, I completely agree. I'm a little bit on the other side of it to where I, I worry, I try to keep my information out of big databases. Right. You know, it's hard. Yeah. Well, if you're, you know, like if anybody's a Dave Ramsey follower who, you know, is fine for people who are lower middle America, Dave Ramsey has a great message, you know, get out of debt because all of their debt is bad debt. 
usually right. Um, now, you know, for more sophisticated people than the Dave Ramsey audience, you know, we say get into high quality fixed rate investment grade debt attached to good income properties. It's a fantastic wealth creator. But, you know, he would say your FICO score should be zero because you shouldn't even have a credit profile. <laughs> right? you know? He's like, just yeah. get out of big data completely. So, yeah, if you're playing that game, your credit score isn't going to be good either, is it? Oh, I have credit scores. Yeah, yeah. Oh, <laughs> you got to have one. Right. But I'm saying there are some people who have completely at least attempted to get off the grid. They don't even have a file or, you know, there's like no data. And a lot of these people are pretty out there. Or they're sort of survivalist mentality, right? But the FICO score isn't going to say anything about them. And they could be a fantastic risk, you know, like a really solid borrower, but, you know, again, they don't apply for loans because they don't believe in the system, right? They're just opting out generally. But uh, yeah, that's interesting. The other thing, obviously, is the loan-to-value ratio. So the loan-to-value ratio, the more skin in the game, as the saying goes, you know, the more money the borrower puts down, the lower the risk for the lender. So generally, the lower the interest rate. Same is true with the loan term. If you get a 15-year loan, rather than a 30-year loan, you're going to get a lower rate on that 15-year loan. But interestingly, if you want to take advantage of what we call inflation-induced debt destruction, that may not be worth it. It may be a better deal to take a slightly higher rate and get the longer term because there are so many advantages to it. That's interesting. And, you know, it'll be interesting, Thomas, to see if we move into an adjustable rate market in the future. If we see probably, you know, it'll be after the next presidential election, but if we see rates climb a significant amount, we may be actually recommending that people look at adjustable rate mortgages, which we haven't done in 15 years because the fixed rates have been so good. But do you have any thoughts about that? Oh, I'd be surprised if we shift to more of an adjustable rate mortgage world. It seems to me with the presidential candidates that are on the opposite side of the current administration, they... They're more low interest rate uh, pushers than Trump is, mm -hmm. you know, with this modern monetary theory of MMT. You know, you can, yes, the much debated yeah. MMT. <laughs> you, you can pretty much uh, do whatever you want and it doesn't matter as long as your debt's in your own currency. You know, Thomas, I got to ask you about that and we'll do another show about it. I would have to think that you are not a believer in MMT, right? No, I'm not. Me, me no. neither. I think it's immature and it's like fantasy land. <laughs> But uh, Adam, who's been on the show many times, of course, he uh, he seems to be a believer. So, you know, we'll we'll see. But I, I, I don't I don't think MMT's legit. Do you? Warren Buffett doesn't think it's legit either. I don't know how it could be. I mean, it, it just seems, it just seems a, fantasy land. As soon as a buyer of U.S. currency starts to think that, hey, these guys are just going to inflate their way out of it. Yeah. Why would anybody want to buy a treasury bond? I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. By the way, as you were talking, I just looked up my credit scores now. 750, 760, and Experian, which is always the lowest one, and I can't figure out why, 715. So 720 is that mark where you're very good, and if you're over 740, you're excellent. So excellent credit. You know, so maybe I should go borrow some money. I should go borrow some more money. I love debt. <laughs> as long as it's attached to good properties. No no consumer debt, folks. No consumer debt. Just debt attached to good properties. But yeah, we'll we'll talk about the MMT more. And then, you know, the type of loan, obviously, 
loans on income property or, well, real estate in general are the best loans available because it's such a secure piece of collateral for the lender. Okay. You know, last great recession, notwithstanding, um, it's still just a very, very secure thing. So good stuff. Yeah. Thanks for talking to us about this today. Any final thoughts before we get to our guest? No. All right. Remember, uh, Meet the Masters live stream tickets are available at jasonhartman.com slash masters. If you're local to uh, Orange County, California or Southern California, you could still buy a ticket actually for the live event. I think as of yesterday, we had exactly five seats left exactly (laughs) because that's it for the hotel and the fire marshal. No more VIP tickets. Those sold out a few weeks ago, but general admission, I think we got five seats left as of yesterday and uh, live stream tickets you can watch anywhere in the world jasonhartman.com slash masters. Let's go to our guest and let's learn more about the IMF. And uh, this is a really interesting interview. So here we go. It's my pleasure to welcome Raghu Rajan. He is the former chief economist at the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, former governor of the Reserve Bank of India, vice chairman of the Bank for International Settlements, featured prominently in an Oscar-winning documentary, Inside Job. Maybe a lot of you saw that. I sure did. And named Time Magazine as one of the 100 most influential people in the world. He's a New York Times bestselling author of Fault Lines, How Hidden Fractures Still Threaten the World Economy, and his newest book, The Third Pillar, How Markets in the State Leave the Community Behind. Raghu, welcome. How are you? Very well. Thanks for having me. It's good to have you coming to us today from uh, Chile, Chicago. Is that correct? That's right. It's cold outside. Fantastic. Well, a lot of people would probably love to ask this maybe seemingly silly question. I'm going to ask it on their behalf and on my own. What exactly does the IMF do? Well, it's the lender of last resort for countries. So when a country finds that it's in trouble, the financial markets aren't buying any of its sovereign debt, and it really needs money to fund imports so that people can eat and live reasonably, they go to the IMF. The country goes to the IMF and says, look, the markets have closed down to us. We have problems. We understand we need to fix them. We need to bring in our fiscal deficits. We need to spend less, uh, tax more, but we need breathing space. Can you lend us some money for that period? And the IMF then comes in, takes a look and says, okay, if you do thus and such actions, we will lend you the money. And typically, this gives countries some breathing time so that their populations don't suffer terribly during that period. Okay, so what is the difference between the IMF and the World Bank then? The IMF is supposed to lend to countries for short-term, what is called balance of payments problems. That is when you run a large trade deficit, which you need to finance. The World Bank is more for large projects. So if you want a hydroelectric dam in the past, they don't finance that anymore. But when you did that, the World Bank used to provide the money and the dam would be built in sub-Saharan Africa, for example. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the IMF would be more like a bridge lender, sort of a central bank, but for the world, right? Uh, You know, like our our Federal Reserve is our lender of last resort in the U.S. And so they would be a bridge lender making short-term bridge loans, whereas the World Bank would be a like a mortgage lender making long, probably many decade loans, I'm guessing. 
Exactly. You've got it right on. Okay. Okay. Good. Good stuff. Tell us about the third pillar. Uh, you know, you, you talk a lot about communities. And when you talk about these in the book, you're referring to physical or geographical communities. Yes. I, I'm talking about the local community uh, where people know each other and people look out for each other. And what I argue in this book is really the community plays a very important role in modern economies, both in preparing people for you know the market. That is, when children are very young, they learn their values from the community. Often the community looks uh, after the school and makes sure that it works for the community children. And uh, as the kids go through, uh, through school, eventually they may go to the community college uh, or out, but they've been well prepared prepared for that. So the community plays a role in preparing people. And also if they fall off, so once your unemployment insurance runs out, once you get old, a lot of people return to the community for support and, and the community often is, is, is critical there. Now, of course, this is what I call the third pillar. It also plays a very important role in our democracies in organizing political action. And I think this is critical to making our economies work. The other two elements are, of course, the competitive markets and the government. And my point in the book is the community holds the other two in balance, make sure that the markets don't get too extreme, and also make sure there is a separation between the markets and the government. Many countries have succumbed to crony capitalism, where the markets and government are essentially one. And the the fact that we in the West largely haven't is primarily, in my view, because the community broadcasts, broadcasts the wishes of the people more broadly through democracy and works to creating that balance. The problem today, and that's what a lot of the book is about, is many communities are in decline. Mm -hmm. And the book talks about why this is a problem. So the communities outside our coastal cities, outside of the New Yorks and the Washingtons and the San Francisco's aren't doing as well as they used to in the past. Mm -hmm. So the book talks about why that's a problem and also potentially how we should think about fixing it. Mm -hmm. So the first two pillars are governments. And when you say the market being the second pillar, you don't mean the stock market. You mean the marketplace, the free market, right? In general? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. All the aspects that make up that market, including our large firms who compete with each other, the uh, labor market where uh, people compete for jobs, as also the financial and stock markets. Mm -hmm. And then the community is the third pillar, if you will, right? Right. Okay. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. And, and when you, you talk about this, are you referring mostly to the United States or to really every country? I set the book largely in our Western democracies, that is uh, Europe, the United States, and to some extent, uh, Japan. But the problems are common across these countries. And uh, often we look internally and say, this is a problem we have. And I argue the, the common force creating these problems across countries is primarily technological change. We've had massive technological change over the last 25 years. It's brought some amount of good. It's increased our growth rates. But typically, the disruption it's caused has come before 
before those growth rates have come. And therefore, a lot of areas have been hit by automation, by the disruption caused by trade, which is also an offshoot of technological change, but haven't yet got the benefits, which undoubtedly will come, but will take time coming. And that's why we have more anger today about why the world is not doing as well as people thought, why their children are unlikely to have as good an experience in the world as they had. You know, in the beginning of our talk today, you you sort of were painting this, what I thought was an idyllic picture of community. It harkened back to reminding me of these old shows like, you know, Andy Griffith with Mayberry. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't even know if you know the reference I'm making there. But, you know, I don't know. I I dream about that time. You know, it's really before my era, but uh, it sure looked nice. But boy, I, I grew up in Los Angeles, California. If I went, I don't live there now. I live in Florida. But if I went back to L.A., I don't think anyone would care about me. (laughs) The hard cold streets of Los Angeles. Right. And I argue this is one of the effects of broadening markets and also broadening state. You know, once upon a time, it used to be that old people used to be looked after by the community because Mm -hmm. they had nowhere else to go. Today, they have social security. Are we better off? Yes, to some extent, because they have a reliable sort of uh, form of income. But we are also hurt to some extent because uh, now the community no longer has any responsibility to look after older people and vice versa. Older people increasingly are not supportive of some of the community institutions like schools. There's sort of evidence on this. So uh, I think you correctly point out that with modernization, the community has become weakened. At the same time, because of the need for community, you see different ways people strive to re engage with each other, right? When I grew up in India, we used to live in apartment buildings where, you know, kids used to run in between houses. Nobody knew where one's kid was. At dinner time, a bunch of kids would show up for dinner. You, you wouldn't right. know whose kid was, was where. Uh-huh. But we don't do that anymore, uh, certainly not, uh, not in the West. But what we try and do is engage through the schools. So today, many parents have much of their social life driven by engagement with parents uh, of their kids friends. Mm -hmm. And that's how they come and make contact. And so I think we're constantly trying to make contact. And in the world of the future, where I think, uh, you know, robots and artificial intelligence programs take over much of the work, I think what is left will be the work that relates to human interaction. And one of the biggest problems we will have to deal with as we age is the problem of loneliness. Mm -hmm. And so my sense is we'll rediscover community. You know, I mean, in England, they actually appointed a, uh, I guess, the equivalent of a cabinet post or a, or a new department of the government to deal with loneliness. That is a serious issue. You know, it's very sort of hard to get a handle on what technology has done to us. In some ways, it has made us more connected, but in other ways, it has made us more distant and more reclusive. I remember in the 90s uh, reading Faith Popcorn's work. Now, I don't know if you know who that is. She was a futurist, and she talked about Uh the concept as it related just simply to home theater systems, you know, big screen TVs and surround sound 
because that was a new thing back then. And she said, you know, people don't need to go to the movies anymore. And so there will be, we're starting to see this cocooning effect. And of course, that was before the internet had any real impact. And now more than ever, we see this kind of cocooning where people aren't going out. And I notice I've been to 81 countries. And I tell you something I notice, the poorer the country the more people are out on the street, they're in the public square, they're in these sort of public places and seemingly socializing. And my theory has always been about that. It's because, well, their houses are tiny and they're not very nice and they don't have high speed internet access. And so they go to internet cafes or, or cafes in general just to use the internet. Absolutely. You yeah. know, and they, and they crowd around a, a water fountain or in a park. In the U.S., we don't do that stuff, <laughs> you know? Yeah, do, no, you, we, we don't. We don't. And that goes to the point that there is a force in technology that keeps us self-sufficient and therefore apart. There's a force in expanding government. And we always think of governments as being opposed to markets, but they actually thrive together. The more developed the country, the larger the government and, uh, and to some extent, larger the markets. However, I think on this issue of technology and what it does to relationships, it can also add, as you pointed out earlier, and, and to some extent, uh, you know, one of the experiments in the book is about this development in Toronto, where, you know, half the development was, was linked on the internet, and the developer ran out of money and couldn't link the other half. And a sociologist said, well, let me study the two halves and see who is more social at the end. Mm -hmm. And believe it or not, the guys who had the internet were actually more social. They used to come together for block parties. They used to organize search parties to look for a missing dog. I mean, it was far more sociable. And the sociologist concluded that, you know, having human relations augmented by the ability to communicate actually makes it even better because now you could travel closed doors. You didn't have to knock on a door to get to the person on the other side. You could send them an email and that would traverse the door, but that wasn't possible in the one that wasn't connected. And, and you can see that. I mean, I, I see it with my kids. They certainly are much more sociable with their friends from college through Facebook and other social media. They, they keep in contact. Well, you know, we, we had to call our friends one at a time by phone in order to keep in contact. So something's changed for the better and of course something's changed for the worse. <laughs> But text-based communication is is not communication. I mean, you must admit that is it's just we need yeah. to put a moratorium on text-based communication. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that that may well be true, but to the extent that it augments face-to-face -face communication, right. then, then we can get yes, these yeah. sudden. Right. Okay, why don't we meet at thus and such place in in twenty minutes? Yes, absolutely. Uh, I think it could help. Absolutely. And John Nesbitt uh, used to talk about that. He's the author of Megatrends. You know, he used to talk about the concept of high-tech, high-touch, and he said things like the jet airplane has only led to more meetings, right? But it, right. you know, that's not necessarily true with social media and I don't know. You know, I guess it's too right. early to tell, right. right? It's just too early to tell. Right. We don't we don't know. We're we're in the midst of churn, but I, I do believe that when all is said and done, we will rediscover that the most valuable part of us is really the human and the human relationships we have. That's what gives us identity. And when we're surrounded by the virtual world, it is a world I think we will come back to. And that's why we need to think about how we keep that going.
Mm -hmm. Yeah, very interesting. Okay, let's switch gears if we can and talk a little bit about money. <laughs> let's talk. Sure. I mean, you know, that that is uh, your career, right? So interest rates, the economy, where are things going? Mm -hmm. That's what everybody wants to know. Are we headed for a recession? Are we looking at inflation, deflation, stagnation? I mean, any thoughts right. on on what's coming our way? We're always headed towards a recession because we haven't learned how to eliminate that from public life. So well, every every ten years, so I guess we are always headed yes. for one. Yes, that's right. right. Yeah, right. So the question is how, how far down the line and what what might cause it. I think to some extent, towards the end of last year, a whole set of pieces of bad information were coming together, slowdown in Europe, slowdown in China, the trade war. And of course, the Fed was raising interest rates at regular intervals and saying, too we're, quickly. we're still not done. They, they were off from yeah, it. too aggressively. Yeah, I think. Yeah. Well, so what the Fed did in January was backed off from that path and made it much more clear that what it meant or intended to mean was that it would look at the data and then act accordingly. And I think the timing of that statement has essentially been taken by the market as a signal that the Fed now does pay attention to what's happening in the market. And if, if the market falls, the Fed will come in and uh, and support it, the, the so-called Fed put. And as a result, I think uh, the markets are celebrating uh, quite significantly. And many assets that were thought of as too risky towards the end of last year are back in favor. Mm -hmm. uh, I think broadly, uh, the Fed has bought us some time before that eventual recession. I think recessions are the hardest thing for economists to predict, though uh, everybody thinks they can. But I do believe that we've pushed it beyond the end of this year for sure. Mm -hmm. So my guess is, I mean, going forward, what could be the factors that trigger something like a recession? Well, for sure, if interest rates start going up once again, especially if inflation picks up, of course, there's no sign yet that it is going to pick up strongly, which is why the Fed is going to watch and wait. I think that is one factor. The other, which is, I think, a little more worrisome because it builds up continuously, is leverage. Mm -hmm. That there was a certain caution about leverage towards the end of the year. It was hard to get leveraged loans anymore. And that caution has, has disappeared once again. And my worry is the longer we have accommodative conditions, the more we build up leverage, which then means when the conditions turn, it could precipitate a worse problem. So these are, you know, we're really sort of harking back to what you call fault lines uh, in, your, in your prior book. Are interest rates, and especially mortgage interest rates, home mortgages, are they artificially yeah. low still? I mean, I believe they've always been artificially low since the creation of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac because they're effectively right. subsidized by the government. But, you know, assuming that these entities stay in place and we continue to have them for the next many, many years, are they artificially low or do we have a, a legitimate market, you know, mortgage market rate, if you will? I think that if you had asked this question a couple of years ago, it would be very hard to tell because the central banks were in full force buying 
and holding on to significant amounts of, of long-term instruments. Mm-hmm. I think since the Fed started unwinding its balance sheet and selling some of the bonds that it holds, or certainly not reinvesting in them, I think there's more of a sense that in the U.S., uh, the prices for these long bonds and therefore the long-term interest rates reflect to a greater extent, a true market value. Of course, there are still central banks like the Bank of Japan, which are buying long bonds and keeping long rates low. But I think the growing consensus is that we are in a low interest rate environment and that long rates at these levels are consistent with a sense that growth over the medium term is going to be you know, not great, not terrible, so-so. And therefore, you know, interest rates will not move up hugely from these levels. Mm-hmm. That said, I think thus far this is predicated on inflation being really quite low, and it's been low so far despite, you know, labor markets tightening up. That is, unemployment rates falling to decadal lows, uh, both in the United States, but also in Europe and in Japan. And that's surprising for most economists. With labor markets so tight, why aren't we seeing more wage inflation? Earlier, the story was you're not seeing workers asking for higher wages because they fear that workers elsewhere will take their jobs. Mm -hmm. With uh, many economies close to what they considered full employment, there aren't that many workers around to take their jobs. And so the great puzzle is why wages aren't moving up faster at this point, especially when every business person is complaining about not finding skilled workers. My guess is this is why the Fed is is sitting in that uncomfortable place where it doesn't quite know whether inflation is just around the corner, which is why it, it won't say it's it's paused. At the same time, it doesn't see growth that is very strong, and therefore it's not uh, willing to commit now to a path of interest rate rises. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're in a new world. Uh, mm-hmm. we, we don't fully understand this world. And of course, there are lots of theories around as to what's going on. Larry Summers talks about st- secular stagnation. Others talk about modern monetary theory where you print any amount of money you want and there's no problem. Yeah, so, by by I, the I way, I, I, have to, I have to ask you, what do you think about MMT? <laughs> I, think, I think it's a fantasy. <laughs> Look, but yeah. I do think that it would be wonderful if it were true. I'm very skeptical. Yeah, me too. I couldn't agree more. You know, uh, an interesting uh, study by the American Enterprise Institute uh, looked at uh, inflation over the last 20 years, and it was mind-boggling. If if you could only see this graph I'm looking out at, I, I went over it in detail on another episode. It just talks about consumer goods, services, and wages. And it shows that in the last 20 years, the cost of televisions, toys, computer software, cell phone service, clothing, it's all become less expensive, right? Obviously, I mean, right. you know, you don't have to be a genius right. to know this. Cars, they say, are about even, but that's not true because the automobile today is so much better than it was 20 years ago. So, right. you know, hedonically, I mean, it's deflated massively. But yet, housing, uh, food and beverage, medical care, child care, college tuition, textbooks, which have to be the biggest scam in history, uh, hospital services, much more expensive. And 
it's just sort of hard to figure out. I look at this as this epic war. You know, it's this war between the deflationary effects of technology and the inflationary effects of monetary policy. Who's going to win or lose that war? Will technology, because it's so deflationary and things just keep getting so much better at lower prices, or will our massive amount of debt cause inflation? I don't know. Who's going to win that war? <laughs> you know? Right now, this is a very interesting question. There's also, I mean, uh, the way you put it, there is good deflation and bad deflation, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And uh, good deflation is when you're making you know, stuff better and more productively, mm-hmm. and prices are falling for that reason. And bad deflation is, you know, because people are scared, uh, there's fear, and activity is down, that's why you get lower prices. And for a long time in the 19th century, we had good deflation because things were getting more productive. Mm -hmm. But of course, that deflation hit people who had debt, like farmers. And that's when you had the big farmer agitations uh, and the populism in the late 19th century. So even with good deflation, it is possible sometimes that you get some unanticipated effects. The the broader point, however, is that we are in a new world and we have to formulate policies for this new world and maybe not stay with policies that were targeted at the old world. That said, I think we have to be careful about accepting any new theory that comes along. Mm -hmm. Good point. Is there anything else you want to say as we wrap it up? Maybe a question I didn't ask you about any of your books or your work or thoughts on the economy? You've been very good. You've been very good. And uh, this is perfect. Okay. Well, Raghu, uh, thank you for joining us. Just to remind the listeners, uh, you've got several books, including Fault Lines and the new book, The Third Pillar, How Markets and the State Leave the Community Behind. And um, I'll maybe just to go back to that subject we started with on, on the community issue. I can't remember who whose song it is, but I believe the song is called Alone. You know, it's a contemporary sort of EDM song. And the lyrics uh-huh. are, everybody's connected but no one is connecting and uh you know i think that's really a a pretty good way to sum up uh, our technological era in which we live so we've got to make sure we actually connect (laughs) even though we're just absolutely i i think you hit the nail on the head Mm -hmm. if that's why we need to rethink our society and i mean it can't be done forcibly but we have to recognize what we're losing and how we connect one again, not just with our friends, but across society. Everything is a trade-off. It certainly is. And we have to be mindful of that. Uh, Raghu, thank you so much for joining us today. You're most welcome. Thank you so much for listening. Please be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss any episodes. Be sure to check out the show's specific website and our general website, hartmanmedia.com, for appropriate disclaimers and terms of service. Remember that guest opinions are their own. And if you require specific legal or tax advice or advice in any other specialized area, please consult an appropriate professional. And we also very much appreciate you reviewing the show. Please go to iTunes or Stitcher Radio or whatever platform you're using and write a review for the show. We would very much appreciate that. And be sure to make it official and subscribe so you do not miss any episodes. We look forward to seeing you on the next episode.